Why should we care about the friendship between Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky? Michael Lewis will give us plenty of good reasons. He'll be here to talk about his new book, The Undoing Project. There was work done by two psychologists in the 70s and 80s exploring the way the mind worked when it was making judgments in conditions of uncertainty. Don't you want a good excuse to rest more and work less? Ariana Huffington has reviewed a new book called Rest, and she joins us to talk about it. There are so many things we can do, uh, starting with creating a transition to sleep. Our bodies are exhausted, but our brains have not been given an opportunity to slow down. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Michael Lewis joins us now. His latest book is called The Undoing Project, A Friendship That Changed Our Minds. Michael, thank you so much for being here. Total pleasure. All right. This book has an origin story that I think is the best kind of origin story in that it came out of a book review. Not a book review in The New York Times, unfortunately, but a a book review by two University of Chicago academics. Yes. Uh, I'd written a book called Moneyball, which was about the Never heard of it. Never heard of it. Uh, (laughs) You know who Brad Pitt is? Yeah. All right. So anyway. (laughs) Uh, uh, And Moneyball was about the way I thought it was about, the way markets misvalued people. Because this baseball team that had no money had to figure out how to get good baseball players cheap. So they started using statistical analysis to replace the judgment of expert baseball scouts. And they found that the judgment of expert baseball scouts was often wrong. Wrong enough that they could find guys who often didn't look right or had something wrong with them, but were actually great baseball players. And conversely, they found a lot of players who were paid a lot more than they were worth, and and uh, to the extent they could trade those off to other people for too much money, they would do that. I never asked, as this review pointed out, like, why do baseball scouts get it wrong? Mm-hmm. And they said, this review went on to say that there was work done by two psych- Israeli psychologists in the 70s and 80s exploring the way the mind worked when it was making uh, judgments in conditions of uncertainty, like is it a good baseball player, or will he be a good president, or will that stock go up, or does he have cancer? These kind of diagnoses or judgments, what what kind of mistakes people made, and I was ashamed. I mean, I couldn't believe I never I never heard of these guys, Kahneman and Tversky, didn't know the work, and so that that was the beginning of this book. It, I mean, I didn't know it was going to be a book, but I was just kind of curious, who are they? So I went and met Danny. So Daniel um, Kahneman, author of Thinking uh, Fast and Slow, and um, Amos Tversky had died in 1996. So Correct. Amos Tversky, they were both professors of psychology at Hebrew University and then moved to the States in the late 70s, early late 70s, and Amos became a professor of psychology at Stanford. Danny bounced around and ended up at Princeton. So you read the review. Um, did you start sort of reading up on him and then contact him, and how did it proceed from there? Very accidentally. So what happened was I read up on them. One of my best friends in the world is a psychologist at Berkeley, a Cal, named Dacker Keltner. And Dacker and I go drinking every month, maybe even more than every month, every few weeks. Mm-hmm. It's usually just to talk about our whatever's bothering us. Uh, but also, we, we talk about literary problems. He's a writer. And I said finally, I said, you know, it's eating at me that these guys did this work that bore so closely on what I did, and I don't know anything about them. And he said, I was Amos Tversky's teaching assistant, and I can hook <laughs> you up there. 
and Danny lives up the hill in Berkeley. You can go see him, and I know him. Uh, so he set up a meeting, and I went up the hill to have coffee with Danny, and it, he was working on thinking it fast and slow then. Actually, what he was doing is once a month, he was abandoning it because he said it was going to ruin his reputation. And, he w- and my job in Danny's life for the first few years of the relationship was to buck him up and to tell him to read the thing and say, you're nuts, publish it. That was the beginning of the relationship. So was it like he had read Moneyball and thought, you know, finally you have come to me to find the the, the roots of your book? Or He's so self-effacing mm-hmm. that, that the answer to that is no, but he had read Moneyball, and he did think it was a curious kind of example of the illustration of some of the points that Amos and he had made in their work. So he saw the connection, and he was happy to talk. But if I had walked in the door and proposed, he wouldn't have married me. I mean, right. he wasn't like looking for me to write about him. Just the opposite. I mean, just the opposite. I was helping him with his book. It was more uh, sort of spiritual guidance rather than actually literary guidance. Mm-hmm. But And we went on a long walks in the hills. And he started talking to me about this relationship he'd had with Amos Diversky. And it became clear that this was, to me, it was a love story. It was this dramatic love story. And he would divulge bits and pieces of it. And I got more and more intrigued by it. I don't know. Maybe th- I met him and I went up there in 2007. I bet around two- late 2009, I said to him, I'd like to I think I'd like to write a book about the two of you. And he was not encouraging. What did he say? If you write a book about us, you'll naturally exaggerate my importance because I'm alive. He said, there's lots of things I'd rather you not know about. Mm-hmm. And he said, I can't see what good will come of it. So those were all his initial kind of responses. And I said, you ought to think about this in a different way. That, that I think that your work with Amos and the relationship is sufficiently important that someone's going to write a book about it because no one has. And maybe after you're dead, someone's going to do it. But in any case, you don't know who it is. And uh, that's, a, that's a wild card. It's not like you can prevent a book being written. And it's probably going to be not a very good book because uh, they won't have the access that I already have. And uh, you know me, and you basically kind of like me. If anybody should write a bad book about you, it should be me. So that's a very good psychological play you made there. I said, I can't promise my book's going to be good, because I actually couldn't. At that point, I was very uncomfortable with the material. I didn't think, oh, this is a book for me to write. I just thought, this is a great story. And it took me some years after that to get the nerve to write the book. But I said, I can give it the college try kind of thing. I can't promise it's going to be good either, but I can. you know I'll try. What made you uncomfortable about the material and about the ability, your ability to turn it into a book? Several things at once. You spend uh, an hour with Danny Kahneman and you doubt everything about yourself for the next three days. That he, he, He's the opposite of confidence-inspiring, mm-hmm. that you come away thinking, I really just shouldn't be doing what I do for a living. I shouldn't, I shouldn't even bother getting up in the morning. <laughs> and so that he... Every time I'd see him, I'd feel deflated. Interested in what he said, deflated in my own powers. But the big thing was that the backdrop to this whole story is the, is the Holocaust, the birth of Israel, and the first three decades of the Israeli state. And I had no particular grounding in that. I'm a like happy-go-lucky goy from New Orleans. I did not feel like that, that, that I had a hall pass to mm-hmm. walk into Israel and start to make broad-sweeping just statements in the form of descriptions about it. And I had absolutely no grounding in psychology. I mean, I, I, I knew I needed to set them in their field, do a lot of reading up. I just didn't know if I could pull that off. What gave me some confidence over time is that no one really had. There was really no good history of psychology, mm-hmm. for example. I could cobble one together by talking to psychologists. And there is a like an encyclopedia of psychology. And there is this this very wonderful and 
uh, I mean, surprisingly kind of unknown uh, history of psychology and autobiography. There's nine volumes of it, and it goes back 80 or 90 years. And it's just psychologists writing little memoirs about their careers, and that's a point of entry. When I realized it didn't exist, I started to feel like, well, again, it's worth doing. No one's done it. It's not like I'm living in the shadow of giants here. I don't feel I should write the same book twice. Mm-hmm. In fact, just the opposite. I feel I don't want to write the same book twice. But you do, there are, is a sense that like some material is your material and some material is not your material. And I thought, I told Malcolm Gladwell, I said, I got some material. It's really your material. It's great material for you. You do it so much better than me. But I, I've kind of got the access. The one thing I left out is that um, it turned out that the one year I taught writing at Cal, mm-hmm. about my favorite student was a kid named Oren Tversky, who was Amos's oldest kid. And I didn't make, I didn't know, wouldn't have known who his dad was then, so it wouldn't have mattered. But Oren opened up the Tversky family to me. He knew me, mm-hmm. you know, we were friends. Uh, so I had, I had odd points of access. Were you at all concerned about Kahneman's concern that, well, I'm alive, and so it's going to, like, to do a kind of dual biography in a way, this portrait of these two men, and only have access to one in person? Did that worry you at all? It worried me more that I had a dead subject. It wasn't that it would be an imbalance that I'd be giving Danny naturally too much credit. Mm -hmm. It was more Danny would be more vivid because I had him alive and I didn't have Amos. And that, again, turned out to be almost the opposite of what I should have been worried about. Amos, it was such a vivid character. And in particular, his, his insistence on doing nothing he didn't want to do, on saving no piece of paper he didn't want to save, on interacting with no one he didn't want to interact with, meant that everything that was left behind him in the form of you know, archives, you know, file cabinets full of stuff, and memories in people's minds was so vivid and clear. He was such a clear signal. And Danny is murky and complicated and self-contradicting. And so in the end, Amos, I think, is a more vividly drawn character than Danny. One other complicating factor, of course, is the fact that Kahneman came out with his own book in the middle of this. I helped him with it. Yes. (laughs) So so I knew what it was. Right. That was only a practical complication Mm -hmm. because, because what did happen is when I first mentioned to him, look, I think there's a book in your your relationship with Amos, he said, uh, my agent and my publisher are going to flip out if I let you do that book before I finish my book. <laughs> right. And I said, well, that's fine. I get fine. to go first. But, you know, after, you know, but that wasn't a problem to me at all. I had other things to write. I just finished the big short. I right. I write Boomerang. I wrote Flashboards. I was, I was plenty busy. I was worried that he was going to drag out the writing of his book and then not write it. Because <laughs> right. that seemed to be the way he was going. He, he I, I mean, it's incredible the links he went to to destroy his own confidence in his material. He paid people to find people he didn't know, anonymous people who were authorities on the subject, to write him negative anonymous reviews to dissuade him from writing the book. I mean, that was going to these kind of weird links and to be proven wrong. He is describing his intellectual history. He, He basically leaves out the story. There are two things. The drama of his relationship with Amos mm-hmm. was a love story, and I knew I was writing a love story, and he had no inclination to write it. And he didn't even, he remembered it in all kinds of weird ways, that I had all these love letters from the files of Amos Tversky that just jog things in Danny's memory. I had more mater- I had, I had better material than he did. And I was, he didn't want to tell the story anyway. And the other thing he didn't really want to do, because it seemed braggy, is he didn't want to show the consequences of their ideas. Even if someone writes their own story and it's the same story you want to write unless they are just have unbelievable literary powers 
there's always room for someone from the outside to come in and do it in a different way. And, and it's worth doing. So you mentioned their background and how different it is from your own background. You have two guys who are both grandsons of rabbis, both atheists, both veterans of the um, Israeli military, um, both uh, grew up in Israel and then moved here. Did you was that hard to kind of capture that uh, that background? Did you go to Israel and, and do research there? I made five long trips to Israel. I tried to find every living person who had anything to do with them. Uh, none of it's in the book. I mean, it's just it's in the background of the book. Is this the most research you've ever had to do for a book that you've written? No. No. <laughs> they're, they're all this way. Yeah. They're all this way. You don't see the work. You don't want to show the work. Well, all the research seems appropriate to a book that is, as you say, of course, it is about a friendship, but it's also about the research that they did together. Um, a lot of it has been discussed in reviews, but give us a few examples of some of the real-world implications of the kind of research they did, non-sports-related, uh, if I can request, because otherwise I won't understand them. But this is research that doesn't sort of stay in a room, the kind of research that No, no, they, they didn't stay in a room. Yeah. I mean, they were in and out, off, on and off the battlefield every seven years. They're mixing it up with the Israeli army every which way, training tank commanders and pilots and all the rest. They were, no, he, they were both. They weren't interested in doing stuff together anyway that well, didn't have real-world consequences. For me, the biggest real-world consequence is having these two characters in my imagination now. Mm -hmm. And when I go through the world, I actually can filter it, thinking, what would Danny or Amos say about this? Because they have such a peculiar lens through which they view the world. And so that's an airy-fairy answer. The practical sort of things are, you know, you can take all their work right into a hospital. I mm -hmm. mean, there's a section in the middle of the book where a doctor does this. Is that he's, in, he's a guy named Don Rettelmeyer, who's a really interesting guy in his own right, who happened to have studied with or collaborated with both of them uh, when he was a pup. And he, they stuck in his head. And his job in the, in the Sunny, Sunny uh, Brook uh, Trauma Center in Toronto is to check the thinking of doctors who are making often very complicated diagnoses in an emergency. Uh, you got people coming in with lots of things wrong with them and the doctor's making quick judgments about how to save their lives. And he's sitting there watching the process and, and seeing them make the kind of mistakes that Kahneman Tversky would predict. Like the, what, what are some of the mistakes? I'll give you a, one, the one example that's in the book. I had There was a woman, uh, it wasn't that long ago, who came in and she, she was part of a group of people who were hauled in from an accident on a highway and she had all these broken bones, and she was a total mess, but she was conscious. While they have her on the operating table, her heart starts to go funny. She starts to have a regular heartbeat, and they, th they panic. Mm -hmm. They don't know what it is. She says something in her, she says, I had, used to have thyroid problems. And they instantly go to hyperthyroidism, which is a very unlikely cause of arrhythmia of the heart. Mm -hmm. But because she said it, it's in their head. But Rettelmeyer is there at this point because it's a complicated case. And he says, well, let's think about the base rates. The base rate, what are the, what are the most likely cause if we had no information? That's what Kahneman and Tversky would say. What are the base rates? What are the, one likely, more, much more likely cause are actually lung problems. And it turned out she had a collapsed lung that the x-rays had completely missed and would have killed her. It was simply by saying, wait, stop. Mm -hmm. Let's think of this in more coldly statistical terms. It's a really unlikely cause of a heart problem she just mentioned. We should wait. We should pause. You won't understand sports, but you will understand the general idea that people think in stereotypes. That's one. That's a crude way of putting one of their insights. Uh, when we look for people for any job, 
we do have tend to have a mental model of what the person what a person looks like who does that job in pro sports that mental model is particularly kind of clear and strong mm-hmm. it leads people who are evaluating people for jobs to pick the wrong people because they pick them because they look right. A lot of it comes down to, it seems like, the irrationality of of human predictions and human generalizations and how... It's that people are impoverished for a way of predicting Mm -hmm. because they don't think their mind doesn't go to statistics or they don't have the data or they don't think to get the data. And so they find a story to tell that substitutes uh, for using a more statistically sound way of predicting. And one one way you tell a story is, oh, wow. You look exactly like the editor of the New York Times book where you should look. I'll hire you. <laughs> Except and I don't. <laughs> how do you know? You may be the new model. In fact, in fact, it's much more likely because you, the longer you're in the job, the more likely it is someone who looks kind of like you has the job after you. The classifications people have in their heads have huge influence on the judgments they make, even if they shouldn't. Were you concerned in writing the book or even or just in finishing it? Like, what's Daniel Kahneman going to think of this? Yes. But I don't think about that. I really don't. It's a curious ability not to pay much attention to my subject when I'm writing it. I think obligations to the reader. Mm-hmm. And then I worry about it a lot when I'm done. A lot. I mean, it keeps me up at night because I don't let him see any of it. Yeah. You know, he's had a sense of what it's about because I've been talking to him about things. But he has no clear idea of what's in the book. So what always happens, every one of my subjects has been upset with me when he sees the book. Mm-hmm. Everyone. Yeah. And they all, I prepare them to be upset. But I say, even if I get you exactly right... Reading it is going to be is going to feel alien. It's going to be like hearing your voice on tape for the first time. It's, you're going to say that's not me. And I ask them all before they call and shout at me to uh, have someone who knows them well read the book and tell them how far off it is. His objection, he did have objections, um, small, big at first, but he already got over that. First, he said he loved it. Well, this is very Danny. He mm-hmm. said this is just marvelous. Then he said, I'm upset. <laughs> but it was unclear what he was upset about. It mm-hmm. turns out what he was mainly upset about was reliving the emotions of his relationship with Amos. Hmm. That's what he concluded in the end. And now he's he's actually very happy about it. He actually said he was grateful for the book. So it's all, we're having lunch in a couple of weeks and it's all happy again. But I don't buy the Janet Malcolm, all journalists are murderers. Uh, they're all journalists are sneaks. I, I actually think... I'm not going to write a book about anybody I don't basically admire or like in some way. Mm-hmm. None of my books are about people I don't like. I trust that my general positive feelings for the character uh, will come across to the reader, whatever quirks, flaws, warts, peccadilloes come across in the story will be put in a, a broader context. My subjects have all been very smart. They kind of understand that if I'm not honest, it's not believable. Then people aren't going to believe the good stuff if they don't see the other stuff too. It's a somewhat loving attempt to actually get the human being across on the page, and uh, you just hope everybody appreciates that. And in the and so far, it's all in my career. It's all been kind of fine, bumpy right after the book comes out, but then fine. Well, I expect readers will be very appreciative, and thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Michael Lewis is the author again of the Undoing Project, his latest book, A Friendship That Changed Our Minds.
I'm very pleased to have Ariana Huffington join us this week. She reviews in this week's issue a new book called Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less by Alex Sujung Kim Pang. Ariana, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So this is one of those books with a title that I just, I sign on board immediately, um, Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less. It sort of seems like, well, of course, um, it's one of those counterintuitive things that we all want to believe. Um, Does the author persuade Does the author make a case? Absolutely. The author really persuades because he brings together the latest science about how important it is for our performance, let alone our happiness and our health, uh, to give ourselves enough rest. And he gives us examples from history of major leaders uh, in politics, in business, in um, media, who prioritized their rest, not because they were lazy, Mm -hmm. not because they were not engaged, but because they needed um, that time to refuel and return to their jobs, um, their missions uh, with kind of renewed vigor. And he also makes it very clear that we are all living under a collective delusion that in fact, in order to succeed, we have to burn out. And he dates it back to the Industrial Revolution when we started separating work from life. Mm -hmm. It seems like rest is one of those words that we all think we know what it means, but I'm sure that he has a definition or maybe multiple definitions. Does he mean physical rest? Does he mean sort of psychological rest? Like, is it something that has to happen alone? Can it happen? in? Does it happen at any time? What does he mean by rest? For him, uh, rest is something very deliberate. Mm -hmm. It's not just the absence of work. And in fact, uh, one of the most convincing uh, parts of the book for me uh, was how often we think just because we're not working, we are resting. But we may just be kind of lost down the rabbit holes of social media, right. uh, you know, checking hundreds of people's Instagram accounts and not really disconnecting in a way that um, refuels us. And there's actually a great um, quote that I included in the review that I'd like to to read. Rest, uh, Pang writes, is not something that the world gives you. It's never been a gift. It's never been something you do when you finished everything else. If you want rest, you have to take it. You have to resist the lure of busyness, make time for rest, take it seriously, and protect it from a world that is intent on stealing it. And I think that sums it up for me for two reasons. One, the truth is that we are never done with work. Mm -hmm. There's never a moment uh, when you can say, I've done absolutely everything I would have done today. Uh, We have to declare an end to work. We have to declare an end to the day. And this becomes harder and harder because we are slightly addicted and in many cases very addicted to our devices. The second reason is that um, there are so many uh, claims to our time and social media especially is designed to really consume more and more of our lives. This is not habit forming. Habit forming. And 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 also 
um, with all the things like the likes, for example, which is just uh, an easy way to get a dopamine hit of yes. validation. All those things are, are intentionally designed to consume our lives. This is not a, a bug of the system. It's a feature. So we have to really, as Pank says, resist the lure, uh, very consciously set boundaries with our use of technology, um, not because we're anti-technology mm -hmm. or not because we think technology is ever not going to be a big part of our lives, but because we need to reclaim sacred space. Rest is very different from leisure time then, I'm assuming. Like you can be doing something uh, amusing or diverting or whatever, but that's not necessarily restful, right? Well, it's restful if it actually helps you disconnect from your jobs, your to-do list, your projects, your worries, and reconnect with yourself. Right. That's really the fundamental kind of definition of rest, the way he presents it. A refuel be able to connect with that deepest part of ourselves from which creativity, inspiration, strength, resilience come. So it's very um, you know, common for people to scoff when you say like, oh, today we're busier than ever. We, you know, we don't get, we get even less sleep. We get even less rest um, than ever. And then people will say, oh, that's always been true. You know, think back to the days where people worked on farms and they woke up at 3 a.m. and they worked all day. Like, are we busier than ever? Are we getting less rest? Oh, absolutely, unquestionably. Not only are we busier than ever, but we were being busy like a badge of honor. Mm -hmm. uh, how often haven't you heard from people? How, how often haven't you said yourself, I catch myself when I say it, uh, you know, how busy I am. Oh, right. yes. Or you, you get an email or you send an email with words like, I'm swamped, uh, I'll get back to you when I come up for air, I'm drowning. Yes, yes, <laughs> I know. I, I reprimand myself now anytime someone says, like, how are you? And I answer busy. busy. Because I'm like, that's such an obnoxious answer. We're all busy. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I think we need to kind of change the cultural norms so that people who actually take time to recharge and rest and refuel um, are the ones valorized as opposed to the ones who are bragging about how busy they are. There is something really important. Online, um, a title was used, which I don't think is completely accurate, which is Ariana Huffington on a book about working less, resting more. This is not about working less. Mm -hmm. It's about working smarter. Um, you may actually end up working the same amount of hours, but be very deliberate about the kind of rest and recharging that you get when you're not working. And I think it's very important if we're going to change the culture to make it clear that this is not about slowing down. This mm -hmm. is not about people who want to chill out under a mango tree. You know. <laughs> but why not? But <laughs> Do why that not? too. Right that also not. sounds good. It, but it's really about people in the arena. It's about people realizing they can actually be more productive, more creative, and at the same time healthier and happier mm -hmm. and more creative if they are deliberate about the rest, the, the way we are about so many other parts of our lives that have to do with work. So for the author, for Alex Sujung Kim Pang, what does a day, a work day, that also incorporates rest look like? Like when you actually you get up and sort of how does that go? He's very open to multiple ways of shaping your day mm -hmm. as long as uh, 
there are dele- deliberate periods of um, sleep mm-hmm. for starters. He and I are very aligned about the importance of sleep, and sleep is not something optional the way we have treated it. And also recharging periods during the day. They could be, you know, literally 60 seconds when you can take deep breaths and reconnect with yourself and move out of automatic pilot or it can be a period to meditate or uh, take a walk or, or do something that disconnects you and recharges you. And the key is that it has to be intentional. Well, it has to be intentional, yes. Mm-hmm. It, it, and, it, and the reason why this is important is because if it's not intentional, it's so easy for us to do what is the default um, setting of our lives, which is to get back online. Right, right. <laughs> or to get on our smartphones and answer more. You know, I have 15 minutes. Let right. me answer the 50 emails that have uh, um, accumulated. Or I have 15 minutes. Let me see what my friends are posting on Instagram. And we may think that's rest, but it's not. So we can screw up rest, too. <laughs> it's not just work that we can rest. <laughs> oh, up. we can screw up rest royally, yes. So you've written a book, um, many books, but uh, recently called The Sleep Revolution. I'm assuming that rest and sleep are different. Um, but is but there... incredibly connected mm-hmm. uh, because sleep is really the foundation of rest. Modern science has made it very clear that unless you have a genetic mutation, and about 1.5% of the population does, and and that means that they may get four or five hours and feel great. Yeah, I want that mutation. You know, it's too late. Because <laughs> you have to have it before you're born. No, I'm, I'm saying that because actually if you're pregnant, you can... Uh, uh, choose that particular gene editing so that your child can have it. But once your child is born, the die is cast. Right. <laughs> so um, if, we, if you don't have the genetic mutation, the vast majority of us need seven to nine hours to operate on all cylinders. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I know I'm an eight-hour girl, and when I get eight hours, I feel differently. It's like a superpower. And, uh, and then it's much easier to have just little periods of rest during the day, you know, very short periods. If you haven't had a good night's sleep, then longer, more deliberate periods of rest, uh, meditating or taking a nap during the day are even more important. It was There was a study that came out earlier this week, or may have been last week, about um, the use of prescription drug medications in America that I think said one in six people regularly use some kind of psychiatric drug and that the most common ones are um, antidepressants, but also anti-anxiety and sleep medications like Ambien. Um, So clearly there's a desire to sleep. And I I would assume that um, you don't advocate Sort of, I mean, is it the same thing if you're... Oh, not at all. Yeah. I have an entire chapter in, in my book about the dangers of a chronic, regular use of uh, sleeping pills. Uh, it's not natural sleep. Mm-hmm. And, and what is sad about that is that we can naturally sleep. Uh, even those of us who are having problems sleeping or who wake up and have a hard time going back to sleep, there are so many things we can do, uh, starting with creating a transition to sleep, which is the main reason why it's hard for us to stay asleep through the night mm-hmm. is because our b- bodies are exhausted, but our brains have not been given an opportunity to slow down. Right. 
and uh, and really disconnect and surrender to sleep. So creating a transition to sleep, which starts with removing all your devices from your bedroom. In my case, I love to have a hot bath or a hot shower, you know, kind of the water purification ritual. You know, reading real books in bed. We are surrounded by books here, which is wonderful. I never take any screens to bed. All those things help um, the, the... the ritual of slowing down, uh, declaring an end to the day and being able to sleep and stay asleep. But we need to prioritize it. If we don't, then we're going to be tempted to just take a pill. Mm -hmm. And that chronic dependence has huge consequences on our health. This book, Rest, um, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less, is um, it's not a how-to book. It really is. A, there's, it's, there's a lot of research to it. Oh, absolutely. Right? There's a lot of science. There's a lot of history, um, including how with the Industrial Revolution, we, we created this Cartesian division, as he calls it, between work and life. That's why I actually do not like the term work-life balance, because there's nothing to balance. You they're know, not in opposition. Is they're not in opposition. We need to stop presenting them as though they're in opposition, because then we have the sense of a trade-off. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm resting and balancing, and my work is offering. No, we need to um, imagine those two, because that's the truth rising or falling in tandem. So this is a subject that obviously you know a lot about, but what was the most interesting thing that you learned reading this book that you didn't know before about rest? I think what I learned is about the importance of making it deliberate, Mm -hmm. Uh, that it's not something that will just happen because what will just happen is for us to be drawn back to our devices. Mm I think that is a very profound point, and it's going to become increasingly true for people as as the technologies and devices are becoming more and more invasive mm-hmm. and social media becoming cleverer and cleverer in consuming our lives. So even um, for people like me, books also consume my life. And sometimes I look at books that have titles like, you're insanely busy or stop the madness. And I think, well, that's a a great message, but who has time to read that? Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I'm curious, like, as a a reading experience, um, is this a book that that you would recommend that people actually take the time and, and read it, that there's enough in there, that the research itself is interesting to warrant that Oh, yes, I highly recommend it. I um, I feel that this is the kind of book that you should put on some reading socks. Have you heard about reading socks? No, but I want them It's already. amazing. It's what like a new craze. It's for me. <laughs> it's just like really warm and yummy socks that you put on and curl up on a couch or in bed uh, with a great book. So reading socks and rest, a great recommendation for this weekend. All right. And the holidays. Excellent. All right. Well, a very uh, forceful endorsement, but peaceful endorsement from Ariana <laughs> Huffington, who reviews in the book review this week, Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less by Alex Sujung Kim Pang. Ariana, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. To talk about what we're reading this week, I am going to welcome two colleagues, Greg Coles and John Williams. Hi, guys. Hey, Hi, Pamela. Pamela. All right. I'm just going to say up front that John Williams um, has shamed us all by posting on Facebook everything <laughs> that he's read this year. And he does this every year. And it, it's a not-so-subtle dig um, at everyone else. But I think it's particularly directed towards um, 
the rest of us at the book review. Um, it's really a dig at myself because it shows that I have literally nothing else to do in my life. <laughs> yeah. Every time read. yeah, but it doesn't read that way to us. Right. It reads like you're living the better life than all of us. Like, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm just More gonna make you life. name the number. What? How many books? Oh, I don't know. That? I don't know. It, it's around, oh, please, you totally. I don't counted. know. It's really? around hundred. Yeah. Okay, well, that's upsetting. It's a little less than last year and the year before. Okay. Um, <laughs> it, was awesome. well, it was a slow year for yeah. John. Okay, so you're only allowed to talk about one of those books this week. What are you reading, John? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to talk quickly about two books. Oh, um, no. Okay. They're related. So I don't – even though I'm on a podcast every week or mostly weeks, um, I don't really listen to many podcasts. But one that I do is this British podcast called Backlisted. And it's sort of a book club where it's about an hour long and they choose a book based on a guest who recommends it. And then they sit around and talk about it and read passages from it. And it's all very uh, elegant and charming in that British way and very smart. And they recently did one of my favorite books, which Greg had talked about earlier this year, called So Long, See You Tomorrow, a brief novel by William Maxwell. And so their enthusiasm for it um, – sent me back to it and it's short so that's nice and I reread that which is just um, it's one of only like a handful of books that I would say is maybe perfect it's lovely in the sense that you can't even if it's not to your taste although I don't know if I would like someone who didn't it wasn't to their taste. Um, <laughs> if you were handed it as a manuscript, you wouldn't change anything. Right. It's just perfectly made and perfectly done. William Maxwell, when we talked about him earlier, um, I had said that he was one of those obit uh, reads for me, one of those sort of yeah. dead people word of mouth <laughs> where like, I, I read his obit. He was a longtime editor at The New Yorker. And then I immediately went out and uh, I read They Came Like Swallows, which I think was his most autobiographical uh, yeah. novel. Which is and also beautiful. Also Perfect. Yeah, he. I mean, his editing, I think, comes into play there. I think he was very strict with himself as well as other people. And then he has a collection of um, letters that they briefly mentioned in passing on the Backlisted podcast called um, with Frank O'Connor, a short story writer who who is Irish and who Maxwell worked with at The New Yorker for many years. And they have a collection called The Happiness of Getting It Down Right, the letters of Frank O'Connor and William Maxwell. And I love writers' letters. I have a big shelf of them at home. Um, but there's a few like sort of bookkeeping letters between them that aren't that interesting, but there's a lot about the kind of art of writing and editing because they're going back and forth about O'Connor's stories. So you learn a lot about that relationship and, and the way those things work. And there's a lot of charm in there too. So I would recommend that one too. Greg, what about you? Uh, I'm also going to talk about a couple of books that are uh, related in their way. Um, you'll, you'll remember last week um, I was reading Evelyn Waugh's Scoop. I finished that last weekend and moved uh, right on to another British writer, um, Dylan Thomas, uh, New, New Directions earlier this year put out um, a, a very small, like a true pocket-sized edition of the Dylan Thomas story, A Child's Christmas in Wales. It's it's truly just a story. It's the kind of thing you can read in an hour or less. Um, I put a fire in the fireplace. We had already <laughs> decorated our tree. It just seemed, you know, we're moving into the Christmas season now officially. Um, this is, is this lovely kind of remembrance, um, very nostalgic and lyrical. Um, Thomas, of course, is a great poet, and this is very poetic, uh, almost like a prose poem. Mm. But looking back at a Welsh childhood um, and and Christmas, kind of the excitement of the presents and everything. It's um, Is just, it a personal memoir or is it fiction? I, I believe it's fiction, it. but it really reads just like recaptured, um, you know, memory. Yeah, based um, heavily on his own. Yeah, very much so. I've never read it 
out loud to my children, but I was thinking the whole time that I was reading it, I think I need to incorporate this into the, the Christmas tradition next year when, when they're decorating the tree. I need to kind of I was actually picturing you sitting around and... the fire with the kids <laughs> yeah, reading said, it. This it sounds like almost revoltingly seasonal. <laughs> and like I, anyway. It really would lend itself to being read out loud. It's the kind of thing that I, I'm sure, you know, some public radio station somewhere, um, the, the way that public radio stations everywhere play Alice's Restaurant on Thanksgiving, I'm sure that there are stations as well that, that read A Child's Christmas in Wales out loud at, at this time of year. Well, this isn't public radio, but would you like to read a tiny bit of that to us? Uh, sure. Let me, I, I'll open it truly at random to give you a sense of kind of the lyricism. But that was not the same snow, I say. Our snow was not only shaken from whitewash buckets down the sky, it came shawling out of the ground and swam and drifted out of the arms and hands and bodies of the trees. Snow grew overnight on the roofs of the houses like a pure and grandfather moss, minutely white ivied the walls, and settled on the postman, opening the gate like a dumb, numb thunderstorm of white, torn Christmas cards. Wow, that was at random? <laughs> yeah. That was truly, okay. literally at random. We just saw yes. him. It was at random. <laughs> yeah, All right. It was random. <laughs> Your that, other book looks like a very, very different... Uh... It, very, very different. I, I said that they were kind of nominally related, um, and, and that's because this other book is also set at Christmas time, but it is as grim and as dark and, and non-nostalgic, and in fact, kind of anti-nostalgic as you can possibly <laughs> imagine. It's a novel that came out um, last year that I had not gotten around to reading yet called Eileen. Uh, it's a debut novel by a writer, a young writer named Otessa Moshfeg. Or put Moshfeg. that on our cover. Yes. Uh, Lily summer. King reviewed it for us on, on the cover of the book review. Um, it lends itself perfectly to the Christmas season. Um, it is set in the days leading up to Christmas um, 50 years ago. So it, it's got its nostalgia there. It is about the title character, Eileen, who lives alone with her uh, much older alcoholic father, and she also works at a boy's prison. And so there's a lot about kind of male rage and, and sensitivity. It is set in New England. And I, I know from the back cover, although I'm not there yet, that it will build to kind of a, a shocking crime. It's grim, but it's really it just grabs you. It's beautifully written. Um, it is just kind of anti-sentimental. Um, and for a, people who liked it, she has a collection of stories coming out next month. Oh, is it next month? Yeah. I, I knew she had a, a collection in the works. So. so this one you're not reading to the kids around the fire. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Pamela, what are you reading this week? I am reading uh, a book that came out last year um, by Judd Apatow called Sick in the Head. And it's really a collection of interviews that Apatow did with fellow comedians. Um, I weirdly don't like really watching comedy, um, <laughs> but I like reading about it. And I like reading oh. Comedians Right, which probably says something very unappealing about me, um, reveals some terrible truth. But actually, there are a couple of comedians I like watching. But anyway, what he does here is so great because it's their transcripts. Um, so it's kind of the best of both worlds. You can read them. And then because it really is them in their own words, um, you can you can hear their voices uh, saying what they're saying. And he starts it off with an interview that he does with Jerry Seinfeld while he's still like, he might be in high school, he might be in, been in junior high. Yeah. Um, and he grew up on Long Island and Jerry uh, was from Long Island. And I am sad to say, also grew up on Long Island. Hey, 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 hey. Oh, John Williams <laughs> also grew, grew up, up on, on Long Island. Island. I did not grow up on Long Island. No, Greg is a superior person. Um, <laughs> anyway, 
it's it starts off just immediately kicks in in this first interview that he does. He was working um, for his junior high school or high school radio station, and he somehow persuaded like bookers and comedians that he was an actual radio host <laughs> and got these major comedians of the time to be interviewed by him. And he said like when he, when they would open the door and see this like kid there, they'd be like, oh no. But you know, they were too sort of polite to, to then be like, I'm not talking to you. So great. So I think he's like 13 and, and he talks to Jerry and he asks him, it starts with a very open question. Um, and Jerry Seinfeld's um, first uh, answer, he says, you know, I'm doing this routine now about this guy that was on That's Incredible last year. Remember that show? Oh, yeah. yeah I yeah. love that show so much. I actually <laughs> had a book version of that show, so that's <laughs> that what was TV. I was. This guy that was on last uh, That's Incredible last year caught a bullet between his teeth. It's like you see a thing like that and you go, what the hell is that? The guy caught a bullet between his teeth. I don't know what's funny about that, but I think to myself, there is something funny about that. <laughs> and that's what I like to do. I think, what job did he have before he got into doing that? What made him go, you know, I'd rather be catching bullets between my teeth. <laughs> I have a whole routine about that. To me, that's funny. Well, obviously, it's me to, to all of us, it's funny, too. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things I, I just love about comedians is they're so funny, um, and they're also so angry, and I love that combination. I love that they're angry, but that they didn't slam the door on the 13-year-old kid, because they, I flipped through a couple of these when the book came across my desk, and they were really funny. Yes. And I just love that they, they have a soft spot. Yes. And I, I, I feel that at this time of this year, right now, at this moment, we all could use a laugh. So Many there's that. Of them. All right. Thanks, John. Thanks, Thank Greg. Thank you. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.